All that glitters is not gold. The person who dreamed up that phrase was William Shakespeare in 1596. And, of course, it depicts something that looks very attractive and valuable from a distance. But when you lean in a little closer to inspect it, you find out that it's not quite so impressive after all. Like that enormous chocolate Easter bunny that someone gave you when you were a kid. Remember that? And you were dismayed when you bit into it for the first time and figured out it's hollow on the inside. Or that great new car you got for a really good deal that ended up spending more time in the shop than it did on the road. Or the boyfriend you had in college whose good looks and smooth words were betrayed by all of his empty promises. All that glitters is not gold. And it's never easy to discover that something that you're trusting in or wishing for or depending on just isn't what you had hoped that it would be. But what's even harder to accept is when the thing that falls short and disappoints in life is you. When it's you yourself. When you become aware of the fact that there are parts of you that are more glitter than gold, more hollow than solid, or uh, to put it another way, when your hypocrisy in some area of life is exposed. What do we do when we discover that all that glitters inside of us is not gold? Well, today's passage, as I think we're going to see, is a lesson in exactly what not to do. Jesus is going to confront here a group of people who appeared to shine so brightly in all of their religious activity and good deeds, but whose hearts, it turned out, were very, very far from God. And so my uh, plan this morning, what I intend to do, is just to walk us through this passage. Um, It's a little bit complicated, so I'm going to try to explain it, and then uh, I want to make a few observations uh, at the end. So let me just give a a little bit of background on this, and, and we'll dive in. The story takes place as Jesus was invited to have dinner with a person who belonged to a group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a religious sect in Judaism that was mostly made up of middle-class businessmen who were also very prominent leaders in the Jewish synagogue. And these Pharisees actually had a lot of good things going for them, at least at first. Uh, They believed that the Old Testament was the inspired word of God, just like we do here, and they strived to live lives that were devoted to something that was called the law. Now, the law was the 613 requirements that were spelled out by Moses in the Old Testament. They're summarized in the Ten Commandments. Most people are familiar with those. Now, uh, even uh, those Now, now those of us today who uh, believe in Christ are no longer underneath this law from the Old Testament, these 613 requirements, but it was very, very important to the Israelites of that day. And the Pharisees put a special importance on living obediently to every single part of the law. They worked really hard to bring every area of their lives into compliance with it. And so you might say, if they strived so hard to follow the law, well, what's the problem? Well, there's an old saying that goes like this. No one knows how bad they are until they've tried really hard to be good. 
No one knows how bad they are until they've tried really hard to be good. Trying really hard to be good exposes how imperfect and flawed we actually are. And when a person tries to keep those 613 laws, they should quickly say to themselves, yikes, this is impossible. It is beyond the ability of a sinful person like me to be able to do this. And no matter how hard I might try to complete this, I'm just not quite good enough to pull it off. I want you to catch something very important. That is exactly by design. There were many, many reasons why God gave the law in the Old Testament, all of them very good. But one of his good reasons in giving all of those 613 regulations was to teach us, get this, how bad we are. What I mean by that is it was to teach us that we don't measure up. We can't measure up. We could never fulfill everything that God requires of us on our own. The law in the Old Testament was like to, like a glass of cold water splashed into the face of people's self-sufficiencies that was to jolt us awake from our own uh, adequacy and, and make us cry out for the grace and the mercy of God. In fact, there's only one person who was able to keep the law's 613 requirements on every count, and it wasn't a Pharisee. It was only God's son, Jesus. In fact, part of the reason why God sent him to this earth was to do just that. The Bible says that we are unable to keep the law ourselves, and so God sent Jesus to keep it for us. God sent Jesus to fulfill the law on our behalf, to be like our stand-in so that his perfect score, which he earned, could be credited to our account. In other words, the law was meant to point people to their need for faith in Christ, their need for a Savior, their need for someone to do something for them that they could not do on their own. The Pharisees, they missed that part completely. You see, the Pharisees believed that that they could do it themselves, that they could keep the law by their own effort. And in order to accomplish this, in order to keep from breaking any one of those 613 laws, they did something actually that's kind of creative and and interesting. Let Let me show you. Take a look on the screen behind me. Let's say that this circle represents the 613 laws that were in the Old Testament, okay? In order to try to prevent themselves from coming even close to breaking any of those 613 laws, they added a whole bunch of extra rules to protect themselves, Okay, this was called fencing the law. It was like they put a fence around the law with all of their rules so that they wouldn't even get in close to it. And and this passage right here is a perfect example of this. Uh, One of the things that the Old Testament law required was the, the washing of a person's hands occasionally during temple related ceremonies. But in order to make sure that they didn't break this law accidentally, the Pharisees added an extra rule that said that a person should wash their hands every single day and before every single meal. 
That way you're just washing your hands all the time. You couldn't break the law. Your hands were always clean. And then they began to twist this rule even farther by saying that if a Jewish person had come in contact with something that might defile them, such as a Gentile or someone they deemed to be a sinner, then what the hand washing would do is it would scrub away any defilement so that when they ate, that defilement wouldn't get inside of them. Okay, So to the Pharisees, washing your hands before every meal was very important. In fact, if you didn't do that, it had become a sin. You see, what had happened was that over time, what the Pharisees began to do is they began to hyper-focus on all of their rules and traditions rather than the law itself. And so now, in addition to teaching that a person must keep on their own all of the law, which, of course, nobody could do, the Pharisees dropped all these extra rules on the backs of people like lead weights. And what Jesus is doing right here is he's confronting it. And so what he did, I I love this, he just went to dinner and he didn't wash his hands. Can you believe that? He did it purposely just to poke them. And the Pharisee was astonished that Jesus would would break this extra rule, and and he calls Jesus out on it, which was a very bad idea. Never call the Son of God out on anything. And Jesus responds by cutting straight to the heart. Look in verse 39. It says, And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Now, what's he saying? What's this all about? Well, imagine that you went to a restaurant for a second, and you were given a a, a cup that had some kind of gooey brown slime on the inside of it. And you said, this has got slime on the inside. And, And the waitress picked it up, and and she looked around the outside, and she said, well, it looks clean to me. I think it's fine. Would you use that cup? No way. You wouldn't drink from a cup like that. And that's what Jesus says that these Pharisees are like. He says, you guys have perfected the art of looking good externally, but in your hearts, there's gooey brown slime. And Jesus says that since God made the inside of a person and not just the outside, shouldn't you be concerned about the inside too? And he says, for example, in in giving alms, which were like gifts to the poor, he, he, he was saying both a greedy person and a generous person can perform that act. But the generous person's good heart makes that act clean and right. Well, the greedy person's self-interest pollutes the gift. When the heart is right, Jesus was saying, then everything is clean. But when the heart is dirty, then everything is contaminated. Right actions do not necessarily lead to a clean heart. But a clean heart naturally leads to right actions. So why, Jesus said, Would you focus on the actions while neglecting the heart? Well, as you might imagine, this was turning out to be pretty heavy dinner conversation. And I imagine that the Pharisee was probably beginning to look for a reason to make a quick exit and excuse himself. But Jesus wasn't done yet. 
In fact, he was just getting started. And what he was going to do is he's going to go on to to pronounce six woes against the the Pharisees. Woes were like uh, curses against them. And I want to just take a brief look at them to explain them. And, And what I want you to watch for is I want you to watch how he calls out their hypocrisy, okay? Woe number one, verse 42. You can follow along if you have a Bible with you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You see, the Pharisees had made a big deal about tithing, and that was uh, giving 10% of their income in support of the temple, and they were meticulous about it. In fact, going so far as to give 10% of even the tiny little herbs that grew in their gardens, uh, this would be like you finding a dollar on the floor at Meyer and, and quickly coming to bring 10 cents to the church. Now, this wasn't such a bad thing for them to do. However, the Pharisees were so zeroed in on the minor details of the tithe, Jesus says that they they totally missed the big picture. They, They were neglecting the most important issues of justice, caring for the poor and, and those who were being treated unjustly, and, and love, he says, for God and neighbor. All of these things they were missing while they were too busy counting mint leaves in their herb gardens. They were missing the forest for a few tiny little trees. Woe number two, verse 43 Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Right? In that day, the synagogue was arranged with a semicircular table in the front where all of the most important and respective uh, leaders were seated. You could think of it kind of like a head table at a wedding. And the Pharisees treasured the honor and the respect that they received from being seated in such dignified positions. But Jesus was calling them out. I mean, this is never the the right motivation for leadership. And they were using their position to inflate their own egos rather than using their position to serve the people in sacrificial love. And Jesus says, this is to their woe. Woe number three, verses 44. Woe to you. For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without even knowing it. The Pharisees taught that a person would become impure if they themselves, or even their shadow, came in contact with a dead body or with a grave. And if this were to happen, a week-long purification ceremony would be required. And so in that day, it was considered common courtesy. If you place a gravestone in the ground... Mark it so it would stand out so that everybody would know to avoid it and and walk around it. Jesus says the Pharisees are like unmarked graves. They were full of uncleanliness and death themselves, and they pass it along to everybody that they come in contact with. And rather than being marked so that people at least know how to to avoid them, they are unmarked so that many people stumble over them. And Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees for this. You are poisoning the people with a teaching that leads only to death. Now these are incredibly strong words. And and as I said, probably not what this Pharisee had in mind when he invited Jesus to dinner. 
But just then we're told that one of the friends of this Pharisee, a a lawyer who was apparently there, uh, a lawyer who was really much the same as a Pharisee, they were also uh, professional experts in the Old Testament law, this lawyer decides to stick up for his buddy. This was a bad idea too, okay? He should have kept his mouth shut because now what Jesus does is he turns his attention away from the Pharisees and focuses on the lawyers. He's not done. He's got three more woes to pronounce against them. Woe number four, verse 46. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourself do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers, rather than helping to carry and relieve the problems that the people faced, which is the very job description of pastors and teachers and leaders, the lawyers did just the opposite. They imposed new and heavier burdens on the people. They loaded them up like donkeys with rules and regulations and traditions and protocols, and yet Jesus said they they couldn't even be bothered to lift one of their pinky fingers to help out. Woe to them. Woe number five, verse 47. This one's a little more complicated. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. This is perhaps the most terrifying of all of the woes. Jesus reminds the lawyers that it was their fathers, their ancestors, who killed off all the prophets that God had sent to the people in the Old Testament. And now what he does is he looks them square in the eye and he says, like fathers, like sons. He says, they killed the prophets and you built their tombs. They murdered them and you keep them in the grave. You continue to this day to stifle my message just like your fathers did with your false teaching and corrupt attitudes. And from the blood of Abel, he says, who was the very first prophet to be murdered in the Old Testament, all the way to Zechariah, who was the very last prophet to be killed in the Old Testament. God was going to hold this generation of the Pharisees and lawyers responsible. The wickedness of this generation of religious leaders was like the culmination of all the wrongdoing in their past from from their ancestors. Uh, One commentator said it like this. He said, in a sense, what Jesus is saying is that if you take all the murders of all the prophets throughout the whole of history and add them together, that doesn't add up to the heinousness of the crime they are about to commit in murdering Jesus. They had the Son of God standing before them, and they despised him. Woe to them. The final woe is in verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. 
What he means by this is that instead of taking the clear meaning of Scripture and teaching it to the people, they had twisted it, edited it, added to it, complicated it, made it serve their purposes, used it to control God's people. They distorted good news into bad. They perverted grace into works. And now, as a result, they had made relationship with God into something that was impossible. They had taken away the key to salvation, and and neither them nor their followers would enter into it. They had claimed to find life, but the only thing that was in them was death. And Jesus says, woe, woe to you. Very serious. So let me just stop. I know know that's a lot. Let me stop and summarize. What do we have here? As I said earlier, we've got a, a group of people who appear to shine so brightly with all of their religious activity and, and teaching, but whose heart, it turns out, were very, very far from God. And as a result, the Pharisees had fallen into very serious error and were living lives of profound hypocrisy. And what Jesus does here is he calls them out. That's what he's doing. He's calling them out. And the question becomes, what are they going to do? What are they going to do when they're called out? How are they going to respond? And and fortunately, the the passage tells us in verse 53, it says, after Jesus had, had said these things, he went away from there. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. Okay, when Jesus calls out their hypocrisy, what do they do? Well, they dig in, right? They turn their attention to trying to catch Jesus in some hypocrisy of his own. It's like they wag their fingers at Jesus and they say, you do not know what you are talking about. No. That is not us, Jesus. The problem is you. And that's where the passage ends. That's where the curtain closed. Now I have to say, there's one thing about this that leaves me wondering. Okay, this isn't the way that that it happened, but I wonder what would have happened if things would have gone a little bit differently at this dinner party. I wonder what would have happened if instead of denying these things, if these Pharisees and the, the lawyers had instead admitted to it. I wonder what would have happened if they would have allowed Jesus' words to truly cut them to the heart. And in that culture, if you were cut to the heart, you, you tore your robes and you fell down on your knees and you covered your head in dust. What if they had done that? What if they had cried out to Jesus and said, oh, you are so right. We are nothing more than glitter, Jesus. And instead of wagging their fingers at him, they'd turned their fingers to themselves and said, oh, woe to us. We are ruined. Oh, Jesus, would you forgive us? 
Oh, Jesus, would you help us to change? Jesus, would you teach us how we can be better and stronger and different? Jesus, would you take away all this glitter and mold us into gold? Let me ask you something. If they had done that, what do you think would have happened? What do you think Jesus would have done? Someone once said that the only ones who find no forgiveness are those who refuse to ask for it. I think that's so true here. And I think that that what this shows us is that the ultimate problem of the Pharisees wasn't so much their hypocrisy, which Jesus could have gladly forgiven them of at, at any time. I believe he would have been most certainly willing to do so. But their problem was the fact that their hearts were just so impenetrably hard. They just were not willing to to see, to stop and and look and to own their hypocrisy and then to, to turn from it. And if they had just repented, they wouldn't have missed out on the spectacular grace of God found in Jesus themselves who was standing right in front of them and I believe waiting, desiring that they would turn. Forgiveness could have been theirs at any time, but they were just too stubborn to ask. I don't think that there's any of us in this room who, who do not struggle at some point or another, in some way, on some level, with hypocrisy, the temptation to just go through the motions, to pretend that we are someone that we're not, to settle for maintaining a tidy appearance while neglecting what truly lies inside. Do you see that in your life at all? I'll, I'll tell you, I, I just saw this today in me. Yesterday, I, I, uh, on Saturday nights, will usually, after dinner, go downstairs and look over my sermon, you know, to make sure that it's ready for the next day. And last night I did that, and I made the mistake of starting to tweak it. And about five hours later, I had really messed it up. It was 11.30. I tried to be in bed at 9 on, on um, Saturday nights that I preach. And it was really messed up. It's like I had ruined my sermon. And I thought, oh, man. And I was just going to give up. It was too late. And I thought, okay, i got to get some sleep so I can get up early. And, and I was just about to fall asleep. This must have been midnight. And my 2-year-old started screaming. And so um, Katie and I went into the room and turned out she was scared of something and and then she wanted a Kleenex and then she wanted a glass of water and then she just wasn't really tired and and you know how it went it, it went on and on and finally we got back to sleep and I woke up this morning very early I thought okay I got to get working on this and and um, I just got out of the shower and there's my two-year-old again she was up and she wasn't tired and and um so then, then one of my other children came up, and he needed something too, and uh, it was really busy, and I was trying to get out of the house, and I was making breakfast, and then we were out of peanut butter. And that was the thing that just set me off over the edge. I was just so angry. We're out of peanut butter. How could we be out of peanut butter this morning of, of all mornings? And here I am. I'm, I'm coming in to preach this and to pray and to sing. And I'm the pastor. I'm the leader. And I'm angry inside. Angry. I'm, I'm frazzled. 
And the question for me is, what, what do I do with that, right? How do I deal with that? How do I resolve that without just pretending this morning? And here's what I want you to, to recognize today. Hypocrisy is a symptom of a much deeper problem in people. It is an external outcome or a, a byproduct of an internal condition. The, the Pharisees were investing so much time and effort and energy focusing on the outside of the cup, so to speak, that they totally neglected what was inside. And in the process, their hearts, their love for God and their love for other people had just shriveled up. And everything that they did became more and more a lie. You know, when we become aware of the hypocrisy that lies in our lives, it should always serve as a warning to us that that there's a deeper problem upstream. Hypocrisy, when what's outside isn't matching what's inside, is always a result of a heart that is slowly beginning to harden. And so I want to end this morning just by a few words speaking to how we guard against that. What do we do to guard against that? Well, listen to these words from Proverbs 4.23. Very important words. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. The idea here is that since every decision and action you will ever make in life is a direct result from the condition of your heart, then protecting and nourishing and taking good care of your heart will be your most important responsibility in life. If your heart is right, everything else in life will tend to fall into place. And if your heart is wrong, it will not. So above all else, don't let your heart fall away from God. God's desire for your life, first and foremost, is to have your heart. God is never content with anything else. And so let me ask you this morning, does God have your heart? Or are you just going through the motions? Does God have your heart? Or are you just going through the motions? And if you come to that realization that says, yes, I am just going through the motions. No, God doesn't have my heart. I'm more glitter than gold. If not, there's two options. The first is to dig in like the Pharisees and just keep doing what you're doing. But I'll tell you what, it's exhausting to pretend and it's no value to anybody at all. Or there's another road, and that is in a spirit of honesty and openness and repentance to do the thing that the Pharisees didn't, to do the things that the Pharisees somehow couldn't, and that is to cry out to Jesus for his mercy, to cry out to him for his help, cry out to him for his grace and for his forgiveness. And I have to tell you, he is so quick to give those things. If you find that your heart is hard, if you find that you're just going through the motions, would you make it your prayer that God would do whatever it would be, whatever is necessary to see your heart changed and softened? Would you be willing to pursue that? 
God loves to do that. I think one of God's greatest joys is to take people whose hearts are hard, to take people who are pretending, and to change them, to soften them, to deepen them. And I believe God would love to do that for you, even today. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that um, even though it is so true that all of us are to some degree or another full of hypocrisy, even though there are layers and layers upon who we are that aren't what we should be, thank you that you love us anyway. Thank you that you desire us. Thank you that it is not your joy to cast away a single one of us but that you have made a way for our hearts to be cleaned through the gift of your only son, Jesus, who came to die for our hearts, who came to give his heart for ours. We thank you for him. We thank you that we can trust you for forgiveness and health. We thank you that you desire to give us a relationship with you and a a love for others that means something that's real. You desire for who we are on the outside to match who we are on the inside. But, oh, Father, do we need your help with that. For us to try to do that on our own is like us trying to complete those 613 laws. It is outside of our ability. May we come to you with repentant hearts, Father, hearts that desire to be honest and real. And we ask you today that you would do that great work that you love to do of changing us and softening us and deepening us and cleansing us. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.